from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There's a lot happening in the world right now, and as we've learned with COVID, inflation, and international banking, what happens in one place affects us at home in America. That's why we're checking in with Michigan Native on the front lines of affairs with foreign governments, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Julie Smith. We'll see why she's back in town, and we'll also check in on to why there's civil unrest in Israel following their government's attempt to change the judiciary with Ishan Theroar and... Dahlia Shindlin. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. The world is a messy place. And while the creation of nations may make it somewhat easier to address problems, those nations are often not neat or tidy places either. Countries, economies may tank, their democracies can falter, partisanship can drive the general public apart, and authoritarian leaders can rise. When these things happen, it becomes harder to maintain peace, to keep people safe, to trade products, and to continue mutually benefiting each other on a global scale. And that can often negatively impact people here in America, and even folks right here at home in Michigan. Think of global wars, terrorist acts, the COVID-19 pandemic, and even economic chaos, like what we've seen in places like Greece or the United States. There's another crisis that we're going to turn to later in the hour. Israel is dangerously close to losing its democracy as that country's prime minister has threatened to place political controls on the judiciary, a judiciary that's investigating him for criminal charges, to, be, to avoid being convicted of criminal charges and being thrown in prison. Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, recently delayed that decision, but that story still leaves us with a lot of questions. But before going there, we want to talk about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was formed in 1949 by 12 countries, including the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and France. Today, the Intergovernmental Military Alliance consists of 30 countries, 28 from Europe and two from North America. And right now, we have U.S. Ambassador to NATO Julie Smith with us to talk about how NATO operates and what her role in NATO looks like and how NATO strategy has evolved over time. Ambassador Julie Smith, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you very much, and good morning. We're happy to have you back here. NATO, Brussels, far away from Michigan, but you are a Michigan native. You're back home. What brought you back here besides what brings everybody else back to Michigan? Well, it's great to be back in Michigan. And as you noted, I grew up here in Farmington, and I always look for opportunities to come back home. But I do spend most of my time now in Brussels, Belgium, at NATO headquarters, working with all those other 29 allies that you just mentioned. As you might imagine, we've been spending a lot of our time focused on Russia's war inside Ukraine, and we work day and night to maintain unity and a sense of common purpose to address that war. But I thought it would be helpful to come back home 
and hear from Americans here in Michigan about how they're thinking about Ukraine and Russia, what questions they might have about the NATO alliance. And so I'm spending a couple days here meeting with students and community leaders. I'm speaking at University of Michigan today. I met the governor yesterday. It's been just a wonderful collection of interactions and engagements and really worth my time. It's great to check in uh, with Americans, particularly in my in my home state. You know, I think that is a great thing that you bring up, because when I talk to people about NATO, one thing that I think happens for me in my conversations is we all might have differing ideas of what exactly NATO does, how it came about, uh, what's its importance is. I mean, there was a stretch of time before uh, 2014 where some people even wondered, why does NATO exist? So let's just start from the basics. Uh, as you see it, what is and you mentioned it a little earlier, what's the purpose of NATO? How did it form? And, and what is it to do? What do you want people to know about what the organization does? Well, so the alliance was created, as you noted, in the late 1940s after World War II. And I think the United States and Canada and its closest allies in Europe sat down and thought about how could we prevent war from breaking out a third time. And so the idea behind the NATO alliance was to have a group of countries come together and pledge collective defense. And that is that collective defense idea is enshrined in the treaty that all those 12 original founding nations signed. It's in Article 5. Some folks may have heard of Article 5. It's a simple clause. It basically goes like this. An attack on one is an attack on all. And over the years, NATO has focused on collective defense, but it has also expanded its membership. And you mentioned this morning that we're up to 30 members and we're soon to be 32 with Sweden and Finland joining. What NATO has done over many, many decades is keep the peace and work towards stability. It takes work. Allies have different perspectives. They have different histories. They sit in different corners of the world, different geography. But ultimately, we all come together around the table and we work together to put NATO's collective weight behind collective action. And that might be our work that we did in the Balkans to bring the peace there. It might be a counter-piracy mission off the coast of Africa. Or now it's our collective efforts to help Ukraine defend its territory against Russian aggression. So Russian aggression was at the heart of why this was even formed in the first place. And one of the things that, uh, as the war is raging right now in Ukraine, that Vladimir Putin brings up oftentimes is that uh, NATO promised not to expand eastward after dealing with Germany, what, around 1990, or that's what people will say. And instead, they've continued to do it uh, some people would say that's a pretext. He seems to say that that was what really drew his ire. Uh, what response do you have to people who say NATO has been expanding further east than it should, as you mentioned, Sweden and Finland looking for acceptance in the organization soon? Well, the NATO alliance did not promise uh, the former Soviet Union and later Russia that it would never entertain the prospect of enlargement. What we agreed to was that we would not be stationing NATO troops at the time in former Warsaw Pact countries. But we, the United States and our friends and allies in NATO, agreed that it is up to each individual nation 
to make its own sovereign decision about which organizations it would like to join. So it wasn't NATO imposing the idea of enlargement on Poland, for example. It was Poland knocking on the door of the alliance to say, look, we're no longer part of the Soviet Union. We have a sovereign right to choose our own alliances, and we choose NATO. We'd like to join the NATO alliance. And so many former members of the Warsaw Pact in Eastern Europe have joined uh, the NATO alliance. And we are about, again, to add Sweden and Finland to the alliance as well. But fundamentally, Russia is now getting more NATO, not less. Because of its war in Ukraine, Sweden and Finland decided to join. Because of its war in Ukraine, NATO has put more troops into Eastern Europe because we have to ensure that we're addressing their deterrence and defense needs. And because he went into Ukraine, we're reaching out to help Ukraine defend its territory right now. NATO does not have troops in Ukraine. NATO is not providing direct military assistance, but individual allies are providing humanitarian, economic, and security assistance to the Ukrainians. But I would also say that Putin has put forward another false pretext for this war. He has talked about the fact that the Ukrainian people and the Russian people are one. He has talked about the fact that Ukraine is part of Russia, which it is not. It's its own sovereign nation. And he has talked about his efforts to denazify Ukraine, which is preposterous uh, and just another excuse to invade. So we are trying to get him to end this war. He could withdraw his troops tomorrow. He's the one that started it. And we are surging practical support to the Ukrainians to hope that, in the hope that they prevail on the battlefield. Yeah, Russia did uh, acknowledge Ukraine's borders in the Budapest Memorandum. We know, of course, also President Zelensky's Jewish uh, heritage would seem to throw a monkey wrench in the idea of him being a Nazi. But all of those things still come to bear when you're making these arguments as we're speaking uh, with uh, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Julie Smith, who's a Michigan native. And I wanted to get into one of the things that you brought up about Sweden and Finland soon to join NATO. I know there were some hiccups there with Turkey and uh, Hungary mm-hmm. pushing back a little bit. In fact, I thought Hungary still pushing back a bit against uh, Sweden, although there has been a vote to allow Finland in. And it seems like that's going to happen with Turkey as well. But you seem fairly confident that Sweden's going to get in. So what has it taken to get those last two countries on board as they are a member of NATO and uh, no one can join NATO unless all of the NATO members agree? What did it take to get their agreements and why are you so confident that Sweden will eventually get in also? Well, I will say when, first and foremost, a couple of thoughts on that. When Sweden and Finland walked through the front door of the alliance last year, the alliance moved out really at a rapid clip to try and start what we call the accession process and the ratification process, where each member of the alliance, all 30 nations, they have to ratify those two countries' accession uh, into the alliance. And 28 countries moved out at a speed we've never seen before uh, in terms of NATO enlargement. And So that was the good news. The more challenging news was that two countries raised their hands and said, we have some concerns. That's not uncommon at NATO. We have 75 years of experience of dealing with a hand going up and a country saying, hold up. We have some questions. We have some concerns. We'd like to talk about them, address them, work towards consensus. And we've done that. And I think Sweden and Finland 
have done a fine job of specifically addressing some of the tur- uh, concerns that Turkey had about their policies vis-a-vis terrorism. And I think Hungary is coming along as well. We just had news yesterday that Hungary went forward and ratified Finland. We believe Turkey will do the same in the next day or two. Uh, and then we've heard both from Hungary and Turkey that they have the intent to move forward with Sweden, hopefully by June. And so NATO has a big summit this summer in Lithuania. And the idea there is that hopefully we will be celebrating the addition of these two new member states. And so I am confident that we can get this done. Uh, Controversy, conflict, disagreements, that's nothing new to the NATO alliance. That's how we work each and every day. But we will get through it. And uh, I'm confident that we will soon have two new members. Very good. And we did mention you're back in Michigan. You've spoken to people on the ground. Um, These are some of the questions I had, especially hearing from you and uh, what you were talking about initially in our interview. But I want to know from you, when you were talking to people on the ground, getting an idea of maybe where some confusion is, questions people had, answers that they wanted, what were some of the things that you were hearing from folks here in Michigan? Maybe some things that were a little surprising to you that you think, "Mm, I need to clear the air about that, about what NATO does or answer some of these questions that people have? Well, I'd say two things on that front. So um, first and foremost, I think Russia is out there each and every day trying to put forward the false narrative that NATO is a party to this conflict and directly engaged. And so I want to make it clear in my engagements here and anything else that I do in the United States or even in Europe, for that matter, that NATO quite deliberately has left itself out of this war. Again, the NATO alliance does not have a presence in Ukraine. It is not providing direct lethal assistance to the Ukrainians. Individual countries like the United Kingdom, like Poland, like Canada, like the United States, Sweden, some of our NATO partners are all providing assistance, but NATO doesn't want to be a party to this conflict. So that's what I've had some interesting exchanges on uh, with various folks here in Michigan. I think the other thing that comes up in engagements is, you know, questions about how long this is going to go on. It feels like the United States has done a lot, and we have. The United States has provided over $30 billion of security assistance to the Ukrainians. But what I'm trying to do here is to help help people understand why that's so important. If we allow Russia to prevail, if we allow this bully to walk in and take control of a sovereign nation. It's not only horrific news for the people of Ukraine that exist in their own right and again uh, live in a sovereign state, but it's bad news for the broader global order. Other countries, other autocrats, China, Iran, will look at what happens in Ukraine and take note. And if the West, if we in the United States, if Europeans, if all the other countries supporting Ukraine look away and we get distracted, then we may find that other countries are taking that as a sign that they can do the same. So it's important that we stand with Ukraine. We want to work towards peace. We want this war to end. We have to apply pressure on Moscow. We have to support the people of Ukraine. But ultimately, we believe they will prevail with the important support that we're providing. And lastly, I'll just say, it's not the United States that's just providing support. Over 50 countries around the world are providing security assistance, and many, many more are providing economic and humanitarian assistance as well.
You know, you mentioned there uh, the need to show that people can't be bullies. One of the things that NATO is bringing up or allowing people to see so that uh, hopefully it can be a stabilizing force throughout the world. But I think for a lot of people who have grown up, especially not living under the shadow of the Cold War or not being so familiar with the threat that seemed to exist out there, they seem NATO might be the destabilizing force because, hey, everything was peaceful until uh, this whole thing happened in 2014, which, again, was not the cause of NATO. But, again, Putin puts forward the idea that it was because of eastward expansion. You mentioned how it can be a stabilizing force. Do you have any historical examples of uh, why NATO was needed in the first place and how NATO may have worked to thwart uh, aggressive intentions uh, in the past that people can see so as to why you feel like it could be a stabilizing force in the world? Well, let's not forget that, again, NATO was created in the wake of World War II to ensure that war would not break out again. The United States had been pulled in twice in a quarter century uh, to get involved. And so first and foremost, the purpose of the NATO alliance was to bring stability to Europe. And that's exactly what it achieved over many, many decades. Instead of watching another war break out, what NATO was able to do was to stabilize the situation and enable the countries that had been at war with great frequency in recent years switch to work collaboratively, build trust, build deeper economic and trade relationships, and work towards peace and stability. And then when the Soviet Union broke up, there was again the possibility of instability, and those countries came into Brussels, into the NATO headquarters, and said, we too want to join this alliance to work towards stability and security, and not just be security providers um, or consumers, but to provide security to the wider Euro-Atlantic area. So the success of the NATO alliance has been first and foremost in the security that it has brought to Europe writ large. And then beyond that, NATO found itself getting engaged in places like Iraq, where it still has a mission there. It is training Iraqi forces. NATO is still present in the Balkans. And again, individual allies are supporting Ukrainians' right to self-defense. So NATO is a stabilizing force, and it is a way for the United States to share the burden of global security with our closest allies. We don't want to have the burden rest solely with the United States. We want to work collectively with our allies because not only does that bring more capacity, but it brings more legitimacy and political heft to any conflict that's out there. So working together is the name of the game um, inside the NATO. NATO alliance. And I believe strongly that NATO is a net security provider to its immediate neighborhood. You know, Ambassador Smith, uh, I know that you got other things to do today. We're going to let you go fairly (laughs) soon. But before I do, I do have one call that I want to get on the air because I think it's an interesting question. Uh, Anthony in southwest Detroit, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Well, thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think it's a lot of, you know, Pluff, pluff, and propaganda spin from the ambassador. I mean, everyone knows the 2014 coup happened, 
and our officials were significantly involved in that, namely Senator John McCain, Senator Chris Murphy, uh, and uh, Deputy Secretary of State Victoria Newland. Everyone knows they were deeply involved in the overthrow of the Yanukovych government. All right, Anthony, I don't know if everybody knows this, but go ahead with your question. This isn't an act of journalism when you're totally it's backing not an up act a of U.S. journalism, Anthony. Do you have a question or Anthony, if you don't have a question, I can let you go. Yeah, well, I do have a question. Go ahead. How did NATO, how did NATO stabilize Libya? Can you can you tell me that, Ambassador? And and uh, and uh, Nick, were you so happy to be in Iraq twenty years later? You think that was the right decision? I'm not the one being interviewed here, Anthony, but I appreciate your call. Go ahead, Ambassador Smith. Do you have an answer for Anthony's question? So in the case of Libya, um, back in uh, several years ago now, NATO did have a six-month air campaign there, and that was at the request of the United Nations. There were actually two UN Security Council resolutions for which Russia voted at the time. I think it was uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1970 and 1973, and we were asked to go in and provide air support. Uh, to the rebels at the time. And NATO conducted, again, a pretty short military mission there. It was about six months in length. That mission uh, achieved its tactical objectives. But there is a wider set of questions associated with what came after that. I think when the international community came forward after that operation to ask the Libyans what additional support might be provided in the name of post-conflict reconstruction, the answer that came back from the folks in Libya was essentially, we've got this. And I think looking back, I think the international community, a variety of organizations, whether you're looking at the United Nations or some of the other organizations out there like the European Union, um, could have had a stronger effort uh, to work with the Libyan government at the time to foster greater stability. All that said, I think NATO came in with a very clearly identified purpose and mission, and it achieved that mission, again, in a fairly short period of time. Well, Ambassador Smith, like I said, I know you have other places to be on your tour of Michigan, but uh, thank you for taking a moment to talk with us during the trip, and uh, hopefully we can have you back soon. Anytime. Thanks so much for your interest. When we continue on Detroit Today, we're going to discuss foreign politics and shift to Israel, where the country's democracy has been hanging in the balance. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson and so glad to be with you today. If you haven't been keeping up with the news around Israel or don't have any connection to the country, you'd be forgiven for missing a lot of internal disruption that's happening over there. Israel has seen about 11 weeks of mass protests that have flooded into the streets. And more recently, those protests only picked up steam. 
On March 12th alone, about 500,000 Israelis engaged in street protests. That's all because the right-wing government of Israel, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, threatened to impose significant political controls on its judicial branch. Netanyahu did that because he was indicted on corruption charges and feared that he would be thrown in prison. The country is so close to authoritarianism that even former center-right Prime Minister Ehud Olmar went so far as to declare that, quote, the government of Israel is the enemy of the state of Israel and that people need to be protesting it. As of yesterday, Netanyahu announced that he would delay judicial changes probably to tame the protesters. But this still leaves us with a lot of questions. Like, why is Israel closer to losing its democracy in the first place? Is the trend in Israel indicative of rising democracy backsliding going on in places like Brazil, India, and right here in America? And how should Americans be reacting to the protests and undemocratic practices going on in Israel? To discuss all of this, we have two guests with us. Dahlia Shindlin is a fellow at the Century Foundation, and she is also a columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Dahlia, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Ishan Tharoor, who is a foreign affairs columnist at The Washington Post. Ishan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Dahlia, I'm going to start with you because are you in Israel right now? I mean, what are things like at the ground? Let us know how you're doing. Thank you for asking. I am in Tel Aviv right now. Yesterday, I went to some demonstrations in the morning in Tel Aviv at various uh, traffic junctions around the city, and then I went to Jerusalem, which was an adventure in itself, because just getting to the train station in Tel Aviv meant crossing huge protests on the street. Streets were closed down, as they had been since the previous night. The trains were full to the point where people could not get on the trains to go to Jerusalem with protesters. Once we got to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, the, the entire area of the city was completely flooded with protesters. The numbers are enormous. I mean, we're talking, I, I don't know if we have final numbers, but 200,000 people roughly. Um, and that was all day until those protesters against the government's plans to constrain the independence of the judiciary. Those protesters went home and were replaced by pro-government protesters in the evening who also flooded the area. Back in Tel Aviv, the anti-government protesters or the anti-judicial reform protesters were still there in Tel Aviv. And, there is a, and, and that's all in addition to the fact that much of the country was simply on strike uh, because the major labor union joined the calls for them to, to, to call a general strike. So major swaths of the economy were on strike, on hold, and there was a general sense that norma- normality was suspended while everybody was waiting for the government to decide whether to continue with these reforms or delay them. And, of course, the government did eventually decide to postpone the legislation that will essentially constrain or some people think end judicial independence. But the legislation is only on hold. So today there is something like a tense pause while everybody tries to figure out, you know, their new position going forward, both the government and the opposition and the protesters who are not exactly political. These are people from all walks of life and society, and of course, the political opposition. So everybody's kind of revising their positions, thinking about what will happen next with this very uh, uh, sensitive legislation. 
I want to break down in terms of this sensitive legislation exactly what the impact of it would be, especially for us here, as we've had our own concerns about potentially uh, illiberalism, as I might say, backsliding of our, our democracy, losing our ability to have our democracy. You look at Israel, it is a place with a democratically elected government. It also has an independent judiciary like we have here also. And so whereas we have concerns here in America, perhaps we can look to what's happening in Israel right now as maybe a a little bit of insight into uh, how things can go. So let's kind of break down what exactly they're planning to do with the judiciary and why it's such a big deal in Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think the first point to keep in mind is that in Israel's political system, we are, first of all, missing a formal constitution, which both means we have, which means that on the one hand, we have no clear formulation of the balance of powers within government. These have all been defined by piecemeal laws over the years. So there's a lot of ambiguity about the nature of governance and the relationship between the different branches of government. But the main thing is that we also have no, uh, uh, um, clear checks and balances on the executive power or clear separation between our legislature and executive other than one thing. Structurally, the main constraint on those two branches of government has been the independent judiciary. So we don't have something like a federal system. We don't have this written constitution. We don't have a president who has a veto. We have a parliamentary system, and the executive is made up of a majority of parliamentarians. So the executive basically has control over the legislature with that majority, and there's nothing really to restrain its power at the institutional and structural level. There are some de facto constraints, primarily that we have about a gazillion parties here who are always competing, and they're fractious, and party uh, governments generally don't have a majority based on one party. They always have to go into coalitions, so they have some natural constraints but not structural or legal or institutional, except for the independent judiciary. And the government's plans essentially said, we don't want these, even these minimal constraints that we have, a judiciary, uh, and specifically the Supreme Court, that has over the years been able to push back against executive action that is overreach as far as the court is concerned. And in, uh, since the 1990s, the court has also exercised judicial review of legislation. When they deem that legislation by the Knesset violates the human rights that have been stipulated in Israeli law. So Israeli, the Israeli parliament passed laws defining certain human rights in the early 1990s. And since then, the court has said, if the parliament tries to make a law that violates the rights that, this par- that, th- that our parliament has, uh, has uh, committed to, we will rule that it's unconstitutional, even in the absence of a formal written constitution. The court, the government is now saying we don't want any of those constraints. And as a result, they have developed uh, a, seri- a series of themes that the court is undermining the true voice of the people, that the court is intervening into the powers of the other branches of governance. And what they want to do is the, the kinds of legislation that they have been proposing and advancing would allow an automatic majority for members of the governing coalition, that is the executive branch, to choose the justices, destroying the delicate balance that we have now between political figures, justices, and professionals from the Israeli bar. And that would essentially mean complete political control over judicial appointment. And what they really want more than anything else is to be able to override any Supreme Court ruling against legislation that is deemed unconstitutional with a bare majority of parliamentarians. So that essentially, parliament could make a law that violates human rights, and if the Supreme Court overrules it, the Knesset says, 
we don't care. We're right. overruling the Supreme Court anyway. Those are just two examples, but this is a whole series of laws that are essentially designed to give the executive and the legislature total control over the judiciary. I right. think that's how the protesters certainly see it. Yeah, and I want to bring in Ishan Thoreau right now, a foreign affairs columnist for The Washington Post. Ishan, I want to bring you in because I know you've been looking at this a lot as well. And we mentioned how there's so much going on in terms of the reaction there, the protests. Obviously, this uh, has had a significant impact on the people there. I'm thinking in terms of uh, historical context, have we seen a lot of this? What are you seeing from the reaction? What does it tell you about how people are feeling about uh, these proposed changes in legislation? Well, you know, what is obviously quite striking is the the depth of polarization that we're seeing unfurl on the streets of Israel's cities, uh, the extent to which uh, there is a kind of brewing culture war uh, in a a country that is quite small in many ways. but I, I do think, you know, the, to, to pick up on Dahlia's terrific explanation of the, the underlying themes and factors driving all this, um, you have these two really uh, contrasting narratives. On one hand, among the protesters and, and those uh, rallying against these, these judicial overhaul, overhaul bills, um, <clears throat> you have this, this, this view that Israel is drifting in a certain way uh, down the path of other illiberal democracies like Poland or Hungary. That's not... Uh, in Europe, and, and and to a certain extent, uh, you know, there are other demagogic uh, illiberal leaders that you can point at who are have set certain precedents for Netanyahu. Uh, and then on the other hand, on the right, uh, you have this narrative that that the, the judiciary, the Supreme Court, is this bastion of a kind of secular left elite that needs to be taken down. And that is a narrative uh, that is very familiar to anybody who's sitting in this country, in the United States. When you think about the grievance politics that's been mobilized by segments of the Republican Party caucus, uh, and so I think those, those themes and those passions are, are very familiar in any context, especially uh, in democracies around the world that are gripped by illiberal nationalist politics. Yeah, and when we're talking about illiberalism in these democracies, again, that backsliding, that idea that you would have uh, elected majority that gets in power, but then starts consolidating more and more power at the top, uh, potentially taking it from the people uh, to institute policies that folks might not like. I know that's a concern that we've had here in America. You mentioned it there a little bit, Ishan. Is there anything that we should be watching out for here in the U.S. and and, and any information that we can pick up on it? What are you most interested in and, and how does that connect with with uh, any analogies that we might have to the U.S. or other Western democracies? You know, I'm not super uh, focused on what what precedents or templates uh, the experience of Israel sets in the United States. I think there are a lot of unique circumstances uh, that shape the Israeli situation. Not least, you know, I think when we talk about Israeli democracy, there is a huge asterisk there because Israel is also a place where there are millions of Palestinians who live under de facto military control with none of the democratic rights uh, of their Israeli neighbors, and and uh, you know it, it live in conditions that a number of prominent human rights organizations have uh, deemed uh, amounted apartheid. Yeah. So I, I don't want to overstate what what Israel could could reveal to the United States, but what is absolutely important is the American role in all this. You know, uh, the United States. Uh, and Israel have a profoundly uh, deep relationship on so many fronts. Uh, there are there are, there's American financiers and right wing organizations based in the United States that are have driven uh, some of the legislation that we're that that's that's 
that's you know dividing Israeli politics right now. And as, at the same time, you have um, a growing debate here in Washington and in some parts of the United States over you know the nature of America's ironclad support for Israel, particularly this government, which is the most right-wing government in Israeli history, which is populated by some incredibly extremist figures uh, in Netanyahu's cabinet. And, and there are some voices that really want uh, the Biden administration to to be much tougher than it is right now. Yeah, yeah. And we want to bring back uh, Dahlia into the conversation because, as Sean mentioned there, uh, of course, there's this other group of people uh, who are under military control, as you just mentioned there. And I'm wondering, with this destabilization uh, that could be happening, does that pose any uh, potential for actually an increase in the voices of uh, folks who were not getting heard as much uh, when it related to what was happening in Parliament. Dolly, I want to ask you that question, because uh, is there an opportunity now for the voices of folks who have been more oppressed to finally get a little bit more of a voice, voice and say in government in Israel? Well, that's a complicated question, but of course I thank you, Sean, very much for raising the issue, because it is you know, part of any basic understanding of Israel that there have been very deep flaws to the point of missing legs of democracy in Israel, uh, certainly because of the occupation, because Israel is controlling about 5 million Palestinians who do not have citizenship, and that does relate to your problem, your question, because they don't have any voice right. in Israeli representative right. bodies. They're not represented at all as citizens, because they're not citizens. But even before the occupation, we have to remember that Israel also was governing part of its own citizens, its Arab or Palestinian citizens of Israel, for the first nearly 20 years of the statehood, were also governed under a military regime. In other words, Israel has accustomed itself to a kind of democracy that includes very undemocratic practice. And from Israelis' perspective, that's okay, that's democracy. So even though I think most people would find that kind of practice you know, un, uh, certainly irreconcilable with a democracy. This is, these are part of the historic flaws. Are those people, specifically Palestinians under occupation, going to have more of a voice? No, but there is a very interesting debate going on among the protesters, because many protesters make the connection that I just made following on Nishan's point, which is that you can't really talk about fulfilling democratic promise or even democratic values, unless Israel divests itself of this practice of holding uh, population under a um, um, military government and martial law, um, and precluding, you know, preventing them from having self-determination for so many decades. But the vast majority of the protesters, I would say, don't want to bring that issue in. They have successfully compartmentalized it mm. and left it out of the conversation about democracy altogether. And this is a debate, at least the fact that there is a debate about it, is in some ways an opportunity, because for a long time, again, Israelis were able to compartmentalize and for legitimate reasons say, well, we can't reach a peace agreement with the Palestinians now. Uh, they're very complicated factors. We don't trust them. They don't trust us. There's violence. And just push to the side. But I think the question about having a, uh, being forced to approach the questions of democracy at this point because of the sense of threat, Jewish Israelis in general and, of course, Palestinian citizens, Arab citizens of Israel, who've always been much more aware of these things, are confronting what democracy truly means. It's an extraordinary moment. We're seeing public free lectures about democracy by constitutional law experts all over the place and debates that haven't been had. And I think that uh, in that context, the question of 
how we reconcile or the fact that these are basically irreconcilable practices, occupation and democracy, are being raised. And there is, I think, a growing sense of urgency among those who have been protesting against occupation policies for many years that this is an opportunity to bring the contradiction to the general public. But it's very early to tell uh, whether that will actually have a widespread change, certainly given that the leadership continues to be extremely right-wing and doesn't want anything to do with that conversation. And we have to remember that that is the leadership that won elections. Yeah. So it's a very complicated situation, and I don't, I, I really can't say that there's going to be some sort of democratic representation for Palestinians over the people who control them, which is the Israeli state, uh, through the army uh, anytime soon. But at least the direction may open up that conversation. All right. We're talking with Dalia Shinlin, who's in Israel right now, a columnist with the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, as well as Ishan Tharoor, a foreign affairs columnist for the Washington Post. We want to speak with you as well. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. Give us a call. Share your thoughts. What do you make of the protests in Israel and democratic backsliding that we are seeing in places worldwide? We'll bring you into the conversation. Conversation. We'll continue on Detroit Today in just a moment. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, having a conversation about Israel, Israel's democracy and the protests that are happening over there. Joined by two great guests, Ishan Tharoor of The Washington Post, as well as Dahlia Schindlin, who's a fellow at the Century Foundation. We also want to hear from you as well. You can give us a call 313-577-1019 to let you know what you make of the protests. What do you think of America's role in promoting democracy? democracy in places like Israel and elsewhere. Should we be doing it? Should we not? Are we doing it well? And Ashan, it is one question I want to have for you, because one of the reasons I recall when it was being sold that America would spend so much money in a place like Israel and is was promoting democracy, one of the bastions of democracy that you could find in the Middle East. So that's why a lot of funding was going to the area. However, moves like what's happening right now with the more right wing government, what Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to do in terms of judiciary would show me that that's moving away from democracy. So does America play a role in this? Uh, uh, how does that fit into our role of promoting democracy? And is there anything that we can do to help promote uh, more democracy in a place like that? Or should we even be doing it? Go ahead, Ashan. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot, long right? history. There's a, there's a long history of American rhetoric and idealism uh, smashing against its, its more uh, cynical real politic in the Middle East. And, and I, I don't think Israel is any exception to that. Uh, well, what's important is that, you know, this week, uh, Biden is hosting a summit for democracies in Washington and Washington, some other cities in the world as well. This is the signature kind of ideological plank of the Biden administration when they came to power. You know, part of restoring American leadership on the world stage after four years of disruptive Trumpism was that we would have uh, this this kind of overt return to principles and ideals of democracy that both anchor supposedly America's place in the world as well as a, a more uh, a more kind of expansive internationalist vision of what America should be when it comes to its own policies elsewhere and what America should pursue. 
Um, and I think, you know, this is a, a pretty, it's pretty awkward timing right now because uh, we do believe that Netanyahu will be addressing the Summit for Democracy in a pre-recorded speech. There's been no indication so far from the Biden administration that they're going to can that speech. Also, you know, we, we've also learned that Netanyahu has received an invite to the White House. Uh, now, <clears throat> whether this is a sign that the Biden administration wants to uh, keep Netanyahu on side and believes that the best way of approaching the situation is by uh, speaking to Netanyahu closely and directly, uh, rather than alienating him publicly in some way, perhaps that's the approach that the White House is taking. But it doesn't really uh, look that great when you've seen the weeks of, of, of really intense protests uh, take place in Israel, when you've seen the rhetoric coming out from uh, figures of Netanyahu's cabinet uh, who deny the existence of Palestinians as a people and who call for de facto genocide in, 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 in the occupied territories. Uh, it, 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 it's very unclear to me to the extent to which the Biden administration is willing to exert any of its leverage over uh, this Israeli government. Uh, and and so uh, I think that's a bit of a blemish when we talk about the summit of democracies. The summit of democracies as a concept in general is also particularly troubled because uh, other major democracies uh, have raised their own uh, red flags as well. Uh, you've seen in India, the world's biggest democracy, uh, the de facto excommunication of, from political life of uh, the main opposition leader. And the United States has been basically silent about the whole thing. So for that idealistic American project, it, it's, 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 it's uh, you know, about to <laughs> crash against the rocks of, right. of you know, difficult geopolitics, basically. So then let's unpack that a little bit more, Dolly. I'll bring you back into the conversation. You know, we've used this term illiberalism a lot, the backsliding of a democratic government to more authoritarianism. If the goal was allegedly to promote uh, liberalism, to promote democracy in the Middle East, if they're moving towards illiberalism uh, elsewhere in other territories where we were promoting that, Dahlia, what might that mean for us in America? Why should Americans care about any backsliding that would happen in Israel in terms of their government and illiberalism? Oh, I mean, it's a good question. I think this is exactly the dilemma that, that America has been in by, you know, conveying that it supports an idealism and democracy promotion around the world, while actually, you know, having largely an interest-based foreign policy over the years, and, and, you know, including even under the Biden administration, as much as there has been rhetoric about bringing these ideals back, certainly we really haven't seen it in the case of Israel, where America has been very passive on it. I think one, one point that I would keep in mind is that authoritarian leaders uh, or illiberal leaders, uh, you know, they feed off each other. They learn yeah. from each other. They take tactics from one another. And the mo you know, when they feel they have lots of allies or that they're part of a wave of uh, you know, growing kind of support for these authoritarian leaders who would roll back you know, the hard-earned gains of democracy over all these years, I think that that simply supports them in other places. And so I, you know, it's no accident that among Netanyahu's foreign allies are, is a whole list of illiberal, po nationalist, populist, xenophobic and, you know, frankly, proto-authoritarian or outright authoritarian leaders, whether it's, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, he has, uh, Netanyahu has in the past boasted of his relationship with Vladimir Putin. He was close, obviously, a long-term friendship with Donald Trump, who, you know, I don't know if your listeners would, uh, would agree with my categorization, but I don't think Donald Trump was a great supporter of democracy. And so uh, I think that these leaders certainly support one another. That's, you know, this, this, these reflect 
where countries are likely to go when they feel they have support from other uh, you know, allies around the world. Um, and I think that, you know, for historically, America has felt that Israel is an ally because of its shared values. Um, and this facilitates strong political partnerships in the international sphere, in commerce and trade, you know, in the economic sphere, um, and also in terms of geopolitics. So when you have the basis for the value, uh, the, the shared values kind of crumbling, the question is whether those alliances will serve you as well in foreign policy and, you know, in the geopolitical sphere as you need. I mean, there are a number of ways that I think that uh, countries get along better when they have similar regimes, and particularly democratic regimes, and that's all without even raising the question of whether democracies are less likely to go to war, which they are less likely to go to war with each other. Not that America and Israel have that problem, but you know, there is a sense that the more democracies in the world, the less they will at least go to war with each other. And so, you know, again, as Ashan pointed out, historically, and if you go back to the creation of the UN and American idealism, there was a sense that it is good for the world if there are more democracies in it. And I think that that's where America risks losing a sense of vision and leadership in its own foreign policy vision. Yeah, you know, I, I, those are all great points. And I think about, especially when we're talking about Palestinians who are in the area, which has been brought up, especially if there's more ability for an authoritarian government to inflict even more pain on a people already receiving so much pain, that would also cause a lot of concern uh, for an America that expresses certain ideals of how people should be treated, of democracy, of allowing people to uh, have a say. But I want to present that question also to you, Ashan, to give you an opportunity to respond. Why should Americans care about what's going on uh, over in Israel? Well, I mean... uh... There, there, there's you know Americans don't have to care about anything. Well, right. Yeah, to be completely honest, right. but uh, uh, and there is a wing of American politics now where there is there are many people making the case that the U.S. should be disentangled from crises elsewhere and should be less invested in making these crises either better or in many cases worse. Uh, but uh, as Dahlia said, uh, our domestic politics bleeds over into these foreign policy conversations. Trump administration, President Trump, uh, very much himself, was one of these. One of, was the preeminent illiberal nationalist on the world stage for a number of years, and uh, in many ways, found a whole cohort of ideological bedfellows in Hungary, in the shape of Netanyahu, uh, and 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 so to a certain extent, when you're when you are watching. Uh, American politics, you, you do see uh, it, it mirrored in various ways elsewhere and vice versa. Uh, I, I, what's fascinating, especially when you think about the American conversation about uh, Israel and Palestine, or Israelis and Palestinians, uh, is that polling does show um, certain interesting and potentially very important shifts. Uh, uh, there is a recent one that came out just this past week uh, that showed for the, probably the first time um, a sing, uh, a major more people, more Americans under the age of three are sympathetic to the Palestinians over the Israelis, mm. which is a, a pretty pretty profound uh, revelation. I think there's a reality, there's a recognition, perhaps more so among younger Americans, that the the nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and yeah. perhaps not even conflict, but just the the, the political dispensation that currently exists, yeah. is yeah. is unfair, unequal, unjust. Uh, and uh, needs to be changed, and and also that we have our tax dollars are going to underwrite the, the security establishment in Israel in, in many ways, and and why is that still the case? Right. And so, 
there is a there is a shifting political there are shifting political winds. I wouldn't overstate sure. those because they're yeah. still ironclad bipartisan support yeah. for Israel in many ways. But uh, times may be changing. Well, that, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you, Ishan Theroar of The Washington Post and Dahlia Shinlin of the Century Foundation for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. It's 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when we discuss a new Atlantic podcast about what Martin Luther King's assassination and the subsequent uprisings meant for America in the 60s and what it means for us today.